0: All right, why don't you stick your fingers in Genesis 14, put a finger there, and then what I want to do is flip all the way over to the book of John. We'll start there this morning, John chapter 8. I have been looking forward to sharing this particular message with you for a long time. In fact, back when we first started Genesis, I knew this was coming, and this one is just very powerful. It's one of those messages that as you study through this and look at these things, you may be tempted to think, no way. That's just, that's too out there, that's too outrageous. Well, just do me a favor, do yourself a favor, and let the Bible be the Bible. Mm-hmm. Just let God's Word speak, and you make your own determination once we get through with this, what you think. But John chapter 8, verse 54, actually let's start back in verse 48, verse 48. For just a moment, John 8.48. Jesus is in one of these typical confrontational scenarios that he typically got in with the Pharisees. Now, you need to know the Pharisees were the religious stuff shirts of the day. They were the guys who thought they had it right. They were very into their own righteousness. Unfortunately we see that happening in churches somewhat today as well where, where we forget that it's by grace that we've been saved and we begin to think of ourselves as holy or as righteous or as spiritual and we're not. We are human. The only righteousness any of us have is what God imparts to us through his son Jesus. But the Pharisees had forgotten that, and as Jews, they had gotten very, very religious, very sure of themselves, very sure of their own authority and righteousness, and along comes this Jesus, who now is hanging out with the wrong sort of people, taking righteousness to the filth. I mean, how could you hang out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors? Jesus, what's wrong here? And so they continually confronted him. This is one of those times, and it says in verse 48 of John chapter 8, that the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Bam! Bam! Two punches to the jaw. You're a Samaritan. You're a half-blood. You're not like one of us. And you have a demon. That's a little harsh to say to someone's face. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. Okay, I appreciate him getting that straight right off the bat. Okay, that's just not true. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, listen to that, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Remember Abraham? Abram. we've been looking at him. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, you will never taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? That's the question. That's the question Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Only it's not who do you make yourself out to be. It's who Jesus really is. And listen to this. He answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Excuse me? Abraham, who lived thousands of years ago saw your day, rejoiced to see it. He saw, it. well, what's going on here? And they say to, to him, verse 57, You're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now flip back over to Genesis 14. When did this happen? Jesus proclaims to the Jews... That Abraham rejoiced to see his day and he saw it. Abraham saw Jesus. What? How's that possible? Well, with man this would be impossible. But with God all things are possible. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 17. Tell you what. Let's take just a moment and ask God to bless us. Father, teach us this morning. Allow us not to rest on human wisdom. And Father, please keep us from human error. Lord, help us just to look at the words of Scripture and understand what you would have us know today. And I pray, Father, as we walk out of here today, we would recognize not only something wonderful, but that our hearts would be touched by your righteousness, your holiness, and the wonder of your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 14, 17 tells us that after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Now hang on, what, what, what happened here? Did we miss something? The first half of chapter 14 in Genesis, Abraham goes on a conquest. He takes off after these five kings. Now these five kings and all of their armies had battled five other kings and had taken Abraham's nephew Lot hostage. And they had taken off, and lots of people hostage, lots of slaves. And so Abraham finds out about this, and with 318 men, goes after five armies, and he beats them. And he gets Lot back, and he makes his way back. And that's what's happening right now, as he's returning from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. And it tells us that, first of all, he meets the king of Sodom. He comes out to meet him in the king's valley, valley. In verse 18, and Melchizedek... King of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That is, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Gave him ten percent of everything that he had. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong, in other words, even a shoelace, or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 24, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten, and the share of the, of the men who went with me, Amor and Escol and Mamre, let them take their share. Who is, first of all, this Melchizedek, this masked monarch, this mysterious man? Who, who is this guy? Where, where did he come from? Kind of out of nowhere. In fact, you won't find Melchizedek in the historical record. Lamar, Amraphel, who's mentioned in verse 1, these kings you will find in the historical record, but not this Melchizedek. This is a strange, mysterious man. What's he doing here, and who is he? Flip over to Psalm chapter 110, 110th Psalm. Keep that finger in Genesis 14, we'll be back there. But I want to throw some verses at you very quickly here. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. This psalm was written a thousand years after Melchizedek, and some 700 years or so before Jesus came along. Psalm 110, starting in verse 1. This, by the way, is a prophetic psalm of the Messiah. Listen to the wording. David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's a good verse to have underlined. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. David is writing. God is is giving him this prophecy. Someone is coming who is a king, who is a priest forever according to the order of this Melchizedek. This guy we just read about. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's the prophecy of Jesus. Now flip over to the book of Hebrews all the way over in the New Testament. Other end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 5. Stay with me here because we're building an understanding of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 5. Now verse 6, the Hebrew writer quotes that psalm that we just read. And he says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now down in verse 9 tells us, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. This is one of those things, folks, that it's sometimes difficult to understand if you're not in the Word. And what the Hebrew writer is saying right here is he's, he's writing a letter and he wants to explain who Melchizedek is. But he's realizing as he's writing, I can't do it, I'm going to do it, but some of you aren't going to get it because you're not in the Word. He's not talking about you, he's talking about the recipients of this letter. If you're not in the Word, you're not going to get it. And so it is today. Well, in chapter 6, verse 20 of the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 20 goes on to say that Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There he is again. Now listen closely, verse one of chapter 7. He's going to start explaining who this guy is. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he or Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils Was first of all by the translation of his name King of Righteousness That's what Melchizedek means King of Righteousness Then also King of Salem Which is King of Peace He's without father Without mother Without genealogy Having neither beginning of days nor end of life But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Mm -hmm. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Back over to to Genesis 14 very quickly. Genesis 14 verse 18 tells us that Melchizedek king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and of earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek appears to be none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Jesus showing up in the flesh to Abram as he comes back from this great battle. Melchizedek is Jesus. Jesus is Melchizedek. Now, there's another possibility here. It's possible Melchizedek is just a picture or a type of Jesus, and that's something that you'll have to work out in your faith and your understanding. But as I read it, as I understand it, I believe Jesus is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is Jesus. It's called the Christophany. There are places in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up, where the Lord shows up in human form, where he shows up and does something amazing. In the story of Daniel, Daniel's three friends who get thrown into the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when the king looks in, or actually one of his soldiers looks inside the furnace, he sees a fourth person walking around with them who looks, quote-unquote, like a son of the gods. I propose that that's Jesus as well. And there are other times in the Old Testament where Jesus shows up. Now what I want to do this morning, I want to look at Melchizedek, also the king of Sodom in just a moment, And see how this all adds up in the person of Jesus. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four things to write down about Jesus that we learn through Melchizedek. Number one, Jesus is the owner of all things. He's the owner of all things. He has everything. It all belongs to him. And this is important to understand in the story with Abram and Melchizedek. The question to ask is what did Abram do when he came face to face with Melchizedek? What did he do? What did he do? Look at the verse. Look at the the story here. Verse 20. What did Abram do? He gave him a tenth of all. That's called a tithe. He gave Melchizedek 10% of the spoils of battle. He came right in and he gave it to him. No questions asked. This is yours. And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 4 tells us again. Observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. He gave Melchizedek a tithe. And the Hebrew writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, goes off on the subject. If you continue reading on in Hebrews chapter 7, he goes off and talks about how this makes Melchizedek a greater man than Abraham. Because the lesser man gives the greater man 10% of the spoils of the battle. But not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, the Hebrew writer says that Melchizedek is greater than the entire priestly line of Aaron. Than every priest who ever stood and offered sacrifice for Israel, Melchizedek is greater. More powerful, more wonderful, higher than those guys. How is this a sign that Melchizedek is Jesus Christ? Look again at verse 20. He gave him a tenth of all, and tells us in twenty-one that the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of the heavens and the earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. What's this mean? Abraham swore something. He made a promise to God. He said, God, I'm not going to take anything. Nothing from the battle. All I'm going to do is go get Lot and rescue him. Bring him back. All the spoils of war, they are yours. I don't want them. I won't take them. But then Abraham turns around and he gives 10% to Melchizedek. You cannot give someone something that is not yours to give unless it belongs to them in the first place. Unless it's already theirs. You can't give it to them. By the way, after we're done this morning... Anyone who's interested, meet me out in the, in the field here, because I'm going to be giving away three horses. Three of them. A big, beautiful brown horse, one that's kind of gray with, with white, you know, and, and a third horse. And you can actually, if you want, take a look at them, because they're right out here. They're, they're the Gilmore, so they don't mind. Because I'm often giving away things that belong to them. And that's what we're going to do this morning, give those away. I also have a, a great John Deere tractor going to be given that to anyone who needs it. You know, I'm excited about this. It's going to be fun. Personally, I'm convinced here that Abraham gave Melchizedek 10% of what belonged to God because of who Melchizedek was, Jesus. Because it all already belonged to God. And there's a lesson here, an important application for us this morning. We say, hey, there's the offering box. And as I came in, or as I'm going out, Lord, I gave my offering. I gave my tithe. And we're so happy that we did it, and we feel good about it. Wow, I did this between, you know, God, I gave you my 10%. And God says, really? Yours? You gave me. You're saying, you gave me your 10%. That's really nice of you. Thanks so much. Needed that. Appreciate it. I love the... uh... The Cosby Show, which is now back on Nickelodeon. You watched it all the way through the 80s. You know, the sweaters are a little extreme, but in the clothes. But it's a great show, and there's a perfect scene in it that explains this very well, I think. Vanessa, Bill Cosby's daughter in the show, she comes into the room and she's asking her dad for money, for clothes, to go shopping. And he's just looking at her like, Where do you think this money's coming from? You want me to just go pick it off the tree? What do you think this is all about? And she looks at him and goes, But dad, we're rich. And he says, no, I'm rich. You have nothing. <laughs> Folks, that's how it is with God. God is rich. We have nothing. We don't have a thing that he hasn't chosen to give to us. And I'll put this to you also, Christian or non-Christian, believer or non-believer, every single thing we have is a gift from above. Everything. We wouldn't have a thing if God didn't choose to hand it to us. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 God is talking to Israel, and this is harsh, but listen close. Will a man rob God? Yet, you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now listen, I'm speaking to committed members of the body of Christ here. People who have given their lives to God. Those of you who say, yes, Father, mine is yours. I am your servant. When we hold back our giving, we rob God of what is already his, of what is rightfully his. Now, I don't say that to make anybody feel guilty, and it's very important. A couple things you need to know. We immediately have some objections. We say, okay, hold it right there, Pastor, pass the buck. I got to know something. (laughs) Wasn't tithing something that was commanded in Moses' law for the Jews? Isn't tithing, this whole idea of giving 10%, isn't that a thing for Moses and the Jews? Well, you may say, hey, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. But even under grace, there are some things to consider. Listen to this. Abraham preceded the Mosaic Law when he tithed to Melchizedek. It wasn't about law. It was about recognition of who was greater. It wasn't about trying to pay back something that he had gotten. It was simply about worship. About saying, God, this is yours anyway. And and about trust. That's the whole giving thing, by the way. You don't give because God needs the money. Let me say very clearly in the Bridge Christian Fellowship and and even as regarding Rick's salary, God's going to take care of that. He's already proven that over and over time and time again. Don't worry about my salary. You deal with the, the faith that you have in God. He wants each of us giving because He wants us to learn how to trust Him in the same way that He took Israel into the desert for 40 years so they would learn how to trust Him. That's what giving is about. Trust and worship. And in the New Testament, by the way, Jesus said this, Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so we hear that and we go, yes, <laughs> see, it's not about my tithe. It's about justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I will do those things. I don't have to worry about this money stuff, as Jesus just said that. But he goes on to say, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Man, if you're looking for Jesus to get us off the hook, he never does. In fact, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, <laughs> you don't have a chance hard teaching Matthew chapter 6 verse 24 tells us why he says no one can serve two masters so will either hate the one and love the other be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot you cannot you cannot serve God and wealth can't do it tithing was not just commanded under Moses law for the Jews It's something Abraham did to Melchizedek is something Jesus went on to say hey <laughs> don't neglect any of it know where you stand with the Lord secondly check this out You may say, well, my giving to the Lord, Rick, it's none of your business. And I would say you're absolutely right. Which is why I don't know what anybody gives. Which is why I will not know what anybody gives in this church. Because it's none of my business. I don't need to know that. We have purposed at this church that the leadership not know what individual people give. Now, obviously, someone's got to know. Someone's got to add it up and figure that out. That's, That's a job for someone who has the heart for it. I don't need to know that. It's none of my business what you give, but it is the Lord's business what you give. It is something that belongs to Him. So, first thing that we see in Jesus is that He's the owner of all things. That's important for us as people just to understand. It's all His anyway. So what are we worried about? It's all His. But the second thing we see about Jesus in Melchizedek is that Jesus is moving on the King of Righteousness. Jesus is King of Righteousness. Hebrews 7.2 tells us the name Melchizedek. Melchizedek, King of Righteousness. And Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 tells us something very interesting. John is receiving the revelation of Jesus and he's seeing something at the end at the very end actually of this time called the tribulation and he's watching something amazing happens verse 11 of Revelation 19 I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself now that just drives me nuts. What's that name? Why tell us you've got a name but you're not... That's like saying, Hey, i got to tell you guys something. No, I better not. <laughs> tell us! What's the name, Lord? What is it that's written on you? Why tell us you have a name and we don't get to know what it is? It's like telling me to you know, go find the corner in a round room. It just drives me nuts. What is that name? Well, we can't know what that name is. We don't even know if we'll ever know it. But we can find out What we're going to call Jesus in his coming kingdom. Because there is a very specific name and we sing about it, by the way. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5. Tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our Righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Yahweh the death. The Lord our righteousness. Melchizedek the king of righteousness. I put it to you that Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is, by the way, my king of righteousness. And one more time, let me just remind you, it will never be your righteousness that gets you into heaven. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that verse where Jesus said, Hey, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, unless you're better than the best of the best, you will not make it into heaven. Jesus' words. So I stand there and go, Well, great. What hope do I have? I can't surpass the Pharisees. I can't do what they did or be better than they were or be better than the most righteous people on the earth. That, by the way, is why people look at church on the TV or hear about Christians around and look at them and just go, I just can't be that good. And they never give Jesus a chance. Listen. Jesus is the king of righteousness. The righteousness comes from him. Not me. Not you. We don't save ourselves. He does. And that is the wonder of grace. Well, Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's also the king of peace. Verse 18 of Genesis 14. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. King of Salem. Well, Salem means peace. So here comes the king of righteousness who is also the king of peace. And Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 tells us that a child would be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And you may recall when the baby was born. Luke chapter 2 verse 14 on that wonderful night. That the angel saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, Genesis 14.18, talking about Melchizedek being the king of Salem, this is a first mention in the Bible. I keep bringing this up, but it's important. A lot of times it's called the principle of first mention. And when things are first mentioned in scripture, it's important to stop and take a look at them and ask why. Because they're usually very significant. And this is the first place, the first reference to God's city, Jerusalem. King of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. So it's another interesting picture about this Melchizedek. He's king of righteousness. He's owner of all things. He's the king of peace. And he comes out of, comes from Jerusalem to meet with Abraham. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 10 tells us the last mention in the Bible of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and both are the place of residence for the king of peace. So Jesus is owner of all things. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. And number four, Jesus is both king and priest. Okay, what's the big deal there? Well, here comes Melchizedek, king of Salem, bringing bread and wine. Receiving a tithe. And he's called priest of God most high. By the way, the bread and the wine isn't that interesting. Symbols of communion. Of the broken body and the blood of Jesus. This is what Melchizedek brings out and gives to Abram as he comes back for more. Blood and and body, bread and wine. But Melchizedek is called priest of God most high. And he's king of Salem. And there's a problem with that. This was forbidden under law. This was forbidden by God. King and prophet, that's okay. David was that. He was both a prophet and a king. And priest and prophet, that's okay. Aaron was that. Both a priest and a prophet. But king and priest, forget it. The story told about a king named King Uzziah. King Isaiah became extremely arrogant, very proud of his conquest, of his abilities, of his stature. And he goes into the temple... And the priest, the priest Azariah, the high priest of the time, and the other priests were around, and they see the king come into the temple, and he grabs a censure, and he begins to fill it up with incense, and he's going to go over to the altar of incense to burn it to the Lord, because, boy, I'm, I'm King Uzziah, and I'm a big guy on campus here, I'm the man, and now I'm going to do something priestly, I'm going to offer incense to God, look at how great I am. And Azariah says, Az- Uzziah, don't do it, don't do it, this is not for you to do, you're not a priest, you're a king. There's a separation between the two offices. And it tells us in Second Chronicles twenty-six twenty-one that King Isaiah got leprosy. He's about to light the altar of incense in the temple, and suddenly leprosy breaks out across his forehead. The Bible tells us that Isaiah was a leper until the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. You cannot be a king and be a priest for God. That is not allowed. God does not mix preaching and politics. It's too much power for one individual. And power devours. Ultimate power devours ultimately, just like it did Isaiah. So kings in God's program came from the tribe of Judah. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek is both king and priest. Jesus is both king and And priests. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 tells us, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. Some of you know this. Branch is Netzer. That's where we get the name Nazareth or Nazarene. Behold a branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Which offices? The office of king and the office of priest. Jesus will be both and there will be peace in that time. This kingly priesthood, this priestly rule, by the way, is eternal. Psalm 110, verse 4 again tells us the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Number five, I said four things I lied. It'll happen sometimes. Number five, Jesus is without beginning or end. Hebrews chapter seven, verse three tells us that Melchizedek is without father. Without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And someone would say, aha, if you're real sharp, you might have caught something in that verse. Aha, I got it. It says that he's made like the Son of God. It doesn't say Melchizedek is the Son of God. He says he's made like the Son of God. Therefore, if Melchizedek is like the Son of God, then he's not really the Son of God. Right? Micah chapter 5 verse 2 Tells us about Jesus His goings forth are from long ago From the days of eternity Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 Tell us about Jesus He is before all things And in him all things hold together Revelation 21 verse 6 Jesus says I am the Alpha and the Omega The beginning and the end Now this raises an issue here Another little problem if Jesus is from the days of eternity, if He's from before all things, if He's the beginning and the end, then when did He become the only begotten Son of God? When did that happen? When did Jesus become the Son of God? He's always existed. And we could say, well, He's just always been the Son of God. But the Bible tells us very clearly that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son of God. That whoever believes in Him will not perish. So when did that Happened? when was he begotten folks there was a specific time a place in history where jesus who is god became son of god psalm chapter 2 verse 7 tells us i will surely tell of the decree of the lord he said to me you are my son today today i have begotten you when was jesus begotten as son of god when he came into the world, when he was born, that was the time that he put on that new mantle, the Son of God. Now Jesus, who was God from days of eternity, who has always been God, part of the three the, the, the Trinity of the Father, and that's all another subject for another message. But when Jesus left that position, left it behind, took off the mantle of his glory and became Son of God, took on a new role, a new position for why. What reason for our salvation? To come and get us. And yet, though he is begotten as Son of God, Jesus is also without beginning and without end. He has always been. There was just a point in time when he became begotten as a human. Now, quickly, back to Genesis 14. I want to show you something else and we'll be done this morning. Verse 21. Verse 21, God, Abraham has had this amazing meeting with Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, king of, king of peace. He's the priest and the king altogether. He owns everything. He's without beginning and without end. An amazing moment there where Abram sees, I believe, Jesus. And then something happens. Along comes, verse 21, the king of Sodom. You remember Sodom? Remember the old stories, the Sunday school stories about Sodom and Gomorrah and they were gone? Pride, faith, history. Well, here comes the king of Sodom. In verse 21, he says to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Folks, this was a huge temptation. Five armies worth of spoils Abram had from this battle. Tons and tons of stuff. Riches, wealth, beyond measure. He could have had all of it. The king of Sodom, one of the kings who he saved, said, hey, you, you take it all. No, take it. No, it's okay. Take the stuff. Go ahead. Come on, you've earned it. You've worked hard for it. It's yours. Take it. But do me a favor. Leave the people to me. That word people there, better translated souls. You take the stuff. Leave me the souls. Who in the world... It's not so concerned about stuff as he is about stealing souls. Satan is. Satan, I'm not saying, was the king of Sodom, but he certainly influenced, compelled the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom says, keep the stuff, just give me the souls. Let me have the souls. You keep it. Be rich and fat and dumb and happy and I'll take the souls. And it worries me, folks, when I see churches today that are concerned about the stuff. Now we talked about having a stained glass window right up there on the barn, but that's as far as we're going to go. I love being in a place, folks, and, and have been in the last couple or three churches I've worked at where it's really been a blessing to be a part of something where it's not about money, where it's not about the stuff. God doesn't want you to be concerned about the stuff. He wants us to be focused on the souls because that's where Satan's headed. That's what Satan's trying to do, take away... The souls. Well, Abram went his way that day victorious. And I read this and I am so encouraged because I recognize how a person says no to Satan. I learned something here from Abram's experience, from his, from his running into, from this, this whole situation where he comes head to head with this Melchizedek and with Satan. Isn't it great that Abraham met Melchizedek first? See, God does that in our world. For for you as believers, if you'll pay attention, God always gets in there first and gives you some encouragement because He knows what's coming. He knows when Satan's going to hit. He knows that the attack is about to come. The temptation may be there. And so God has this tendency to just show up real quickly and offer you bread and wine. Communion. It's what we just did in here. It's why we do it every week. Why is that? Because it keeps us focused on Jesus. And he comes first. And he says, hey, you're blessed. I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm right here. Because right hot on the heels of Melchizedek comes the king of Sodom. And that's exactly what happens in our world. The king of Sodom comes on in. And we need to just know... This is why it's so important to keep our eyes open to the work of God. Because the work of Satan might come along so quickly right behind it. Folks, how do you say no to the seduction of Satan? By saying yes to the owner of all things. By saying yes to the one who's without beginning or end. Yes to the king of righteousness. Yes to the king of peace. Yes to the king and priest. The one who offers the bread and wine, the body and blood, Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. And the more you say yes to Jesus, the easier it is to say no to Satan. And those of you who have been Christians for an amount of time know it's not just a one-time claim. It's not just saying yes to Jesus once and walking away going, I got it. I am together. I'm righteous. I'm holy and perfect. Because I had that moment with Jesus. Not even close. And it's funny when I talk about that because people who I absolutely know are Christians all smile and go, that's right. I have to say yes every single day. Every morning I wake up and I have to say, yes, Jesus, today let me follow you. Because when I don't, the King of Sodom is right there. He's right there rapping on my heart saying, hey, keep the stuff, keep the stuff. Focus on the stuff. I'll take care of the souls. Say yes to Jesus. I want to stop right here. There's one last thing I want to tell you, but let's pray together. Just take a moment and pray If you have never said yes to Jesus Then right now is a great time to do it It's so simple There's nothing difficult about it If you've never done that I'll give you the opportunity to right now as we pray And even if you have said yes to Jesus Say yes again Father in heaven And Jesus we know you're our king, our Lord You are God most high And it's because of your sacrifice, your blood and your body, that crucifixion. It's because you were willing to take that punishment which belongs to me and put it on your own shoulders that I can even stand here and claim to be saved. But Jesus, this morning we want to reaffirm our belief in you. And Father, I know there are some here this morning who are on the verge, who are on the edge of making a decision to give their lives to you. And I pray they will right now And if that happens to be you today Without drawing any attention to yourself Just pray these words in your heart after me to Jesus Dear Lord I recognize that you are Lord And I recognize that without you I don't have a prayer That Lord I I am a sinner That I have a broken life And a broken heart And that I can't seem to make it all right. But Jesus, you can. You can. And so I confess my sins to you this morning. You know what they are. I know what they are. I confess them to you, Father. Give them to you. And I pray, Lord, that you will become my Lord today. That you will be my Savior. And that you will set me on the road toward heaven. The road to righteousness, not because I'm righteous, but because you are. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That you died, you rose again, and that you're coming back. Forgive me and take me in as one of your own. And Lord, we all together just say yes to you again today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. One last thing. There's a question that arises time and time again in a pluralistic, polytheistic, and paganistic, multi-religious world, which is where we live. No longer a society that, that can even really claim to be a Christian society. We live in a world where all sorts of religions are laid out and offered as opportunity: Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and you can just go down the line and, man, take your pick. And we live in a world where that's the attitude. Don't be exclusive. Just kinda go with the flow and do what feels good to you and be sincere about it and we'll all kind of get down to the same place. And I had a conversation with someone this last week and I won't mention this person because I just don't want to embarrass but and some of you are waiting for me to mention this person's name. I'm not going to. But we had and the question came up about the exclusivity of Christianity. And it does raise that issue, and I've been asked straight to the face before, why are you Christians so exclusive? Why do you say that it's only by Jesus that you can be saved? What about the faithful Muslim? What about the Jew who half your Bible is is the Jews? What about the Hindu who is is peace-loving and faithful and and all that? What about all of these things? How can you claim that Jesus is the only way to God? Well, first of all, I didn't make that claim. But he did. Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't leave any other options. I am it. I am the way. But secondly, folks, Jesus didn't call himself the way to be exclusive. That wasn't the point. He called himself the way because Jesus is the only one, not Muhammad, not even Abraham or Moses, None of these other guys did what Jesus did. He is the only one who did what he needed to to make our stained and sinful lives inclusive into the realm of God. What the world will sometimes call exclusive, Jesus only. That's exclusive. God's saying, I did this. I died for you to make it inclusive. So that you could come home. So that you could be with me. And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 tells us, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. But he did this once for all by offering up himself. And that's the deal. Without the covering of Jesus, this high priest of the order of Melchizedek, we don't have a prayer. But with Jesus, we have our own shot. We have our prayer. And I've gone long. It's kind of obvious. I've gone a little long this morning. <laughs> Sometimes they just go. It's that voice. He just keeps going. Tell him to shut up, mom. I've had it. Once time. So. <laughs> I choose to go to the Father through Jesus because I want to go to the Father. If we wanted to come out to Whidbey Island, we got to cross the bridge. And that's what Jesus is. He is the bridge. He is the way to the Father. And all these other ways may sound nice and they may seem deceptively peaceful. But the truth is there's one way to God and if you want to get to God, you go through Jesus. That's the deal.